premise of your tweets, though, if you can sum up character of God in 140 characters or less, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to guess that whatever you would say, maybe what you're tempted to say on the front end, is probably very different than where we're going this morning. And so I told you when we started the series, we're doing something a little bit different for, those, for, for Mosaic. Okay, so for, for us as a community, normally the way that we approach the scriptures and teaching and this whole thing on Sunday morning is we look at themes, right? We look at uh, ideas, uh, things that are relevant, very applicable to our lives, and we'll, we'll approach that theme and open up the scriptures and see what God has to say about it. And it keeps it very, very fresh. I love doing that because it keeps things very fresh, very relevant, very applicable. Um, we try not to get caught up in some of the big, cerebral, ethereal, deep doctrinal theology that sometimes has no intersection <laughs> to real life. Um, so we try to keep it very, very real. But for this series, we're doing something very different uh, than normal. And rather than approaching something thematically or a topic, uh, we committed to journey through a book of the Bible, Galatians. It's a relatively short letter. But in process, in like journeying through what we're kind of signed up for, is letting the text read us rather than taking what we want to look at in the text. And so we're allowing the text to raise the issues. And uh, it's forcing us to have some conversations, honestly, that for me as a teacher, I probably wouldn't normally go out of my way to have and to talk about. And this morning is one of those weeks. Um, in some ways, this morning's kind of an unmosaic kind of message. Uh, I saw Christian, who leads us in worship up here uh, most weeks, I saw him last night, and he said, so what are you talking about tomorrow besides grace? You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, you got me. You know, we're, we're pretty unapologetic about grace. And in fact, the series that we're in, People of the Second Chance, the whole letter of Galatians, like that is like the, the drum that just keeps getting beat is this message of God's grace in the gospel, the second chance that he gives every single one of us. Um, but this morning is, is a little bit different. And, uh, and so I'm particularly interested to see how those of us who are skeptics and doubters uh, in the room or listening to the podcast will receive this. And for you to engage in some ways, you're kind of listening uh, in on, in some ways, what is sort of an internal conversation. Um, and if that's you, I would, my challenge for you is to just, if you can, for the next few minutes, to kind of suspend disbelief in God, if you can. And just think hypothetically, theoretically, if there is a God that exists— um, and if he's anything like the Bible says he is, so if he is just this majestic, overall creation, powerful, all-knowing, all-present being who is perfect and holy and just, uh, and you were to come into his presence with his infiniteness and your finite uh, imperfection, we'll say, uh, to be nice, how, what would be the appropriate response, would you say, if you were to come before that God? Would it be, what would it be? What comes to mind? How do you think you would respond? With all your junk, his perfection, his infiniteness, your finite, very, very smallness. What would that be? Right? For those of us who are, are believers and, and followers of Jesus, um, I think this will be a little bit interesting as well. So last, last, last week, uh, in the letter of Galatians, we bumped into a guy named Peter. Right? And the apostle Peter was, in some ways, he was a really big deal. I mean, we're talking about Peter the rock, right? Peter who walked on water. Peter, who was with Jesus in some of his most incredible miracles, powerful moments, but also in some of his most vulnerable, intimate moments, uh, who was personally commissioned by Jesus to, to lead the church and to do all these different things, who was given the Holy Spirit. I mean, all these different things. He's got quite the resume. But one of the things that we found out with Peter is that, that he struggled with something throughout his story and his life, and that was the, the fear of other people. He, he put a lot of stock in, in what other people thought 
certain people, not everybody, but certain people he really cared a lot about. And functionally, what ended up happening is he made people at times very, very big and God very, very small. And we called this a fear of man, and we looked at it biblically. And my whole aim last week was just to get us on the same page, that this isn't just Peter's issue, and this isn't just my issue. uh, But for most of us, if not all of us, uh, it is our issue. And when we're young, we call it a number of things, peer pressure being one of them. And then we grow up, and we call it something else, maybe to make us feel better, I don't know, people-pleasing. And then in psychological circles, we call it codependency, and it looks a lot of different ways. Right, but last week, the whole purpose was just to bring us on that page, own our junk, call it what it is, the Bible says it's sin, and just invite Jesus into that. Um, this week, I want to talk about the other side of that coin. All right, so last week, we looked at a passage of Scripture to start off, and I want to look at it again. You can go ahead and throw that on the screen. And it gives us some language to this fear of man business. It says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Our fear of man will, will keep you, it will control you, it will be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, on the other hand, is kept safe. Now throughout the scriptures, this is the dichotomy that we're given. Uh, we're given a choice. And we, we mentioned this last week. And, and what the scripture suggests is for you and I is that ultimately we're going to fear one of two things. We're either going to fear God or we're going to fear people. One of those is going to have ultimate supremacy in our life. One of those things will ultimately... Uh, control us and shape us and the decisions that we make. And so this morning, I want to talk about what it means to fear God. And if you're anything like me, you might have a mixed reaction when you even hear that. Because uh, as I've shared before, I, I grew up in this rural, very fundamentalist Baptist church in the middle of nowhere. And I had adults in my life who seemed, it seemed like they felt their role in life and in my life was to instill the fear of God into me. Right, and so there was a lot of like turn or burn, fire and brimstone type language. Uh, it was very fear-based. A lot of scare tactics. And as a kid, right, I was scared. Right, and so they would do all these different things. And maybe for you, you didn't grow up in church, but maybe uh, you went to one of these conferences where you have these really awful skits. And it seemed like the whole purpose of the skit is just to scare the hell out of you. And it can be somewhat effective, right? And so, you know, I remember one, and they had, like, the escalators, and one's going up, you know, and one's going down. And, like, the people going up are going up to heaven, and the ones going down are going down to hell, and they're like, why, God, no! You know, and they're shouting to their friends going to heaven, why didn't you share Jesus with me? You know, it's just, it's horrible. And, uh, you know, maybe it was that for you. Maybe you went to a Bible camp, or maybe you just visited church, or maybe you've just known Christians, and what's been communicated to you along the way Right, it's kind of this scare tactic. Like you need to fear God. You need to turn or burn, repent and, and be saved or be condemned and judged. Right? And so I don't know if it if it raises the kind of mixed feelings, this idea of fearing God with you as it does to me, but it's something that we've we've got to kind of wrestle with. Right? Because the scriptures give us this paradox. It presents us, presents us with this paradox that we have to we have to hold in tension. That there are there are two parts to God that are equally important for us not to forget. So for us, like there's this one side of God that is the lover of the unlovely, right? The, the administer of grace, the friend of sinners, the compassionate God, the loving God. And for us, like we, I think we readily attach ourselves to that God, and that's very, very true. For us as Mosaic, we talk about that God a lot, and that is true of God, right? Made, made very public and very clear in Jesus. But then there's this other part of God that is also a part of his character, and part of our call to him 
uh, is to, to fear him. Right? We talked about last, year, last week, it's not necessarily being terrified, although sometimes it is that. But to fear God, just like to fear men, it's not necessarily to be scared, but it is to hold in high regard. It is to be awed by him, right? It is this divine wow, right? And the, the, the biblical word for this is, is phobos. It's phobos, and it's everywhere. So I want to give you some examples. So Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, says this. It says, Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Right, Proverbs 1.7 says this. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? And this isn't just Old Testament. Right? This is in the New Testament as well. It's, it's everywhere. First uh, Peter 1.17 says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here uh, in reverent fear. Right? And this word here again is phobos. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, My dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation in phobos, in fear and, and trembling. All right, and so this is everywhere. In fact, uh, the Bible has hundreds of examples, hundreds of examples of people responding in this reverent fear and awe to God when he moves, or just an outright explicit call on our lives to fear God. And so I want to talk about this paradox. I want to talk about what this means, because it's very, very important to us, as unmosaic in a sense as this is. Um, I'm glad it raises a question, right? So we need to deal with a couple of different extremes. What, I, what it doesn't mean, what I can definitely tell you, phobos, this fear of God, doesn't mean is that we should live terrified of God, right? And fear, like scared of him, uh, consistently throughout our lives. That's definitely not what, what it's saying. I remember reading an interview with Moby uh, a number of years ago, and, and I love Moby, and Moby actually has a very deep, uh, rich, personal faith, and he was talking about his faith in Christ, and, and I'm reading this article, and, and it, as he goes through, I mean, it's, it becomes very, very clear throughout the article that, that, that fear, as in being afraid of God, is a big part of his story. And he actually quotes that, that passage about fear and trembling before God. And, and as you read the article, it becomes very clear that, that, that he lives afraid in many ways. Like I read it, I'm just like, man, poor Moby. That just is a horrible way to live. Right? It, it, there, there's this perception almost that God is like this bully in the sky with a bully club. And he's just waiting for Moby to step out of line and then whack, you know. And so I'm reading this, and, and, and in one sense, I'm like, man, Moby, man. Like, you're missing the character of God that is, that is the lamb, right? That, that is the gracious one, the lover and the unlovely, the administer of grace, the giver of second chance after second chance after second chance, the God that is love. You're missing that. But what I will say is this. There's another part of this that I think Moby gets that maybe we don't really get. And that is there is, there is this healthy, um, well, we could debate whether it's healthy or unhealthy. It's, I'd say it's healthy. Respect for God. Like, when it comes to the issue of God, like, it's not something that he takes um, really, really lightly. And, and so as we talk about this, there's, there's, when it comes to this phobos, I say on the one hand, right, it's definitely not being terrified of God and living terrified of God. Right, the Bible talks about, man, no, love, perfect love, it drives out fear. Right, that he is a God of refuge who we can run to, who loves us uh, compassionately. But, this whole idea of phobos, at the same time, it definitely doesn't mean nothing. Right? There's a reason that it's, that it's throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and, and that we're, we're called 
We're called to it. Right? And, and honestly, I think it's important for us to have this conversation. I'm glad the text raises the issue. Because I'm going to venture to guess, for us as a community, uh, regardless of our age, if you call Mosaic Home or you just even loosely connected to this community, you're connected maybe to people who are connected to this community, if we're going to err somewhere, uh, given our, us as a community and just given uh, culturally where we're at, I'm going to guess our erring is not going to be on the, that fundamentalist side and, and living terrified of God. Right? If anything, if we're going to err, I think where we probably err is, is in this casual disregard for God. Um, right? Most of the people that I, that I run into, whether they consider themselves to be church people or, or not church people, uh, it seems like most of the time, with a lot of the decisions that, that we make, the, the question that comes to mind is not, what would my creator think of this? You know what I mean? It's like, I'm going to do what I want, and ah, God will just deal with it. You know what I mean? Um, they act almost like as if life is, is, like this life is their own. And there's not, like, this real reverence for the fact that, like, you and I, like, we didn't create ourselves, right? You didn't create yourself. And so in a sense, like, you didn't give yourself life. Your life is, is not your own. And maybe, just maybe, you might have to give an account one day for your life, right? I don't see a, a lot of that. Um, there's kind of like this, this, this irreverence, right? And um, I'm, I'm guilty. Right? It's almost like God is like the buddy-buddy in the sky type thing, right? And I am totally guilty. So I used to have this shirt. It was my favorite shirt I owned for probably a year. Uh, it was, said, Jesus is my homeboy. Do you remember that shirt, anybody? Um, I love this shirt, and I think in this weird roundabout way, I felt like I was being bold for Christ when I wore it, you know? It's like, did you read the shirt? It's true. Jesus is my homeboy. Want to talk about it? No? Okay. Um, <laughs> but, you know, along the way, what I'm happening is I realized, um, okay, I'm wearing this shirt, but so is, like, Ashton Kutcher and uh, Pamela Lee Anderson, and <laughs> I'm watching them on TV, like, wearing the Jesus is my homeboy. I'm like, okay, I don't think I know what I'm communicating with this shirt, you know? Or I think, like, culturally, at least we're a little bit confused on what is being co- communicated here. Uh, at the very least, there's just kind of this casual, God is my buddy buddy, Jesus is my homeboy type thing, right? Kind of like just, right, God is one of us, just a stranger on a bus, right? Just a slob like one of us, right, trying to make his way home. And uh, in a sense, it's like, man, okay, yeah, I get it. Like, in some sense, like, yeah, God is accessible, and, you know, Jesus did actually come and become one of us. But there's also, at the same time, it kind of creates just this wishy-washy, like, yeah, it's just Jesus, whatever. You know, it's just, just God, you know. Um, and I wonder, and I wonder, I just wonder if we haven't, to a certain extent, knowingly or unknowingly, kind of desecrated God. And I know that's like a really strong word, but, you know, to desecrate, it's a combination of two words. It's to de, it's de and sacred. And I just wonder if somewhere along the way, in our just casualness, in talking about God or referencing him in pop culture or wearing the horrible t-shirts, guilty, um, if, it, if we haven't lost, in a sense, this, this, what is sacred, what was meant to be sacred. And just to give you some examples, right, just, just kind of making it everyday, making it menial, just, just common, no big deal, right? So, for example, um, Crosses, right? Once upon a time, there was a time when, if, when you had a cross on your body, right, it, I mean, it meant something. You were publicly proclaiming that I have been crucified with Christ, and you can crucify me. You can take my life because I am in him, right? Now it's not so much. Now it's, you know, you can be toting a cross, and it doesn't matter whether you're 
Pope Francis or signing autographs at LA Erotica, right? Everybody is wearing crosses. Shirts, jewelry, right? Tattoos, gotta be the most popular tattoo. Right up there with barbed wire and Chinese symbols. I think cross has to be the most popular one. And, uh, and I'm not suggesting getting legalistic on this whole thing. Like, us Christians, we should only be the ones who get to wear crosses. Not at all. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But what I am suggesting is that what was once very, very, very meaningful, um, we see everywhere. And, and I wonder if it's lost its, its, its meaning. Right? It is very possible for us to see it everywhere, uh, to wear it, to tattoo it on our bodies with very little thought for what, what that means. Where, where did this cross come from? And what might the God be like behind it, if there is one? Right? Another example, uh, TV and film. And you, I've told this, said this before, but my favorite comedies make fun of evangelical Christianity. They are, have always been my favorite. And I laugh hysterically because we have lots of Fruit Loops in our tribe. And there's lots of things to laugh at. And sometimes you've got to laugh or you'll cry. So you just, I laugh. Um, but like I grew up on The Simpsons, so I love Ned Flanders. Uh, he is just the best uh, to laugh at. Nobody wants to really be him, but I love laughing at him. You know, and then came, uh, you know, South Park and... I love South Park, especially when it makes fun of Christianity. Um, you know, Family Guy, like the whole thing. The other day we, we uh, rented the movie, This is the End. I don't know if anybody has seen this. I can't wholeheartedly recommend this movie because there's some stuff in there. It's just like, oh, jeez, forgive me, Lord. Um, but we're watching this movie, and the whole idea is, is all these celebrities, they all play themselves, and they're in Hollywood, and the rapture happens, and the apocalypse takes place. And what ensues is just hilarity, you know, as they're trying to make sense of what's taking place. And, I mean, there's like, uh, you know the guy from Superbad? What's his name, the big guy? Jonah Hill. Yeah, so Jonah Hill uh, is in the film, and he gets possessed by a demon, and they tie him to the bed, and they make a spatula, like with a spatula and something else, they make like a cross, and they're like shouting at him, like, the power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! And Jonah Hill, he's all tied up there, he's like, really? Am I compelled? Is it compelling me right now? And we're like, I'm wiping tears. Like, it's just, it's so sacrilegious and really, really funny, right? And so I'm guilty. I'm not being legalistic or judgmental, but I will say this, right? Is that the more that we kind of talk about it and laugh about it and make it very, very commonplace, um, I just, I, I wonder, you know, if, if we haven't just begun, when we treat the things of God so casually, if something isn't lost in the process, even when it's accidentally, right? And the sacred, uh, it's no longer sacred, to us, right? Another thing that, that I hear a lot of, just kind of off the cuff, you know, is, is oh my God, oh my God. You know, it's not just, and it's not just outside of the church. I mean, here too, uh, yeah. And, and so I'm not saying, and this is a conversation for us, by the way. So I don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians, okay? So this is not being judgmental. This is an internal challenging conversation. So I play volleyball with a group of people who are definitely not Christians, on Monday night. Some great friends, but they all say, uh, no. Um, and one of the gals that I play volleyball with, she, all the time, she's always like, Jesus Christ! Usually when she hits a bad shot. You know, and every time she says that, I, I usually say something uh, to the extent of, may his name be praised forevermore. You know, and, and I'm not being passive-aggressive. We're just laughing at the fact that I'm a pastor and she's cussing. Um, right? But I hear a lot of it's in the church too, right? And it's just like, oh my God. Oh my God. And it, just to paint a picture, you know, I mean, just kind of where we're at. I mean, Old Testament times, you wouldn't even say the word God. You wouldn't say his name. 
it was sacred, so you wouldn't dare utter it because it was considered so just untouchable and holy. Right? And so to say it, just kind of commonplace, again, um, I'm not trying to be legalistic or judgmental or police language at all, but at the very least, right, the name God, when we do that, it, it, we can say that there isn't like a sacred reverence or awe for it. When it becomes common, uh, I fear we lose the sacred. There's not like this holy fear, this awe, just coming before God and just being wrecked and, and, and falling on our face, right? Um, I, I wonder if it, it's just so common. And, God's be, and what happens is God kind of just becomes our big buddy in the sky. You know, and, and sin's not a big deal because God will forgive us. He kind of has to. It's his job. Right? And getting radical and going all in, that's not really necessary because, I mean, he's my best bud. He's his big buddy, Jesus. Buddy Christ. Right? Buddy Jesus who I put in my pocket and I pull him out when I need something or it's convenient and I put him away when it's not. Right? It's so different. So different. I just wonder if we've lost it. There's no sense of awe or reverence. And, and, and it's, it's just important because when I open up the scriptures, what I see when God shows up, I see people just like falling on their face before God and being wrecked by his presence. Now, when's the last time that you were just wrecked by God's presence? Just took you to the floor because there was nothing else to do. Right, just, just a couple few months ago, I was in my office, I'm working, got some worship music going on in the background, right, normal, I'm not even really paying attention, but for whatever reason, the lyrics caught, caught my, my ear, and, and I'd heard this song a number of different times, but all of a sudden, I don't know how else to explain it, but I just became aware uh, of the presence of God in that moment. And I just had to, like, get off my chair and just, like, fall on my face before God. And if anybody walked in in that moment, they would have thought I was a crazy person. But I didn't know what else to do, right? And when God shows up, there, there's nothing else to do but, but, but worship him. And here's the thing. It's not that God just showed up and he wasn't there before, right? It's that I just became aware of his presence. And I just can't help but wonder together and wonder out loud, how often I live just, you know, at best unaware of his presence and at worst with just casual disregard for it. Right, when's the last time that you were just wrecked by God's presence in the best of ways? Here's a question. When's the last time, as it relates to God's magnitude and just creation being a reflection of the kind of God that God is. When's the last time you walked outside on, on, on a clear night and looked up and just drank it in and let it just floor you by how amazing the night sky is? Right? The scriptures say that the heavens declare the glory of God. When is the last time you just drank in that glory and let it just wow you and take your breath away? Right, consider this, right? if you and I decided that we were going to go on a little project and we were going to count as many stars as we could see with the naked eye, and we had all the time in the world, and, and we traveled to the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere, and over several months we counted the maximum amount of stars that you can see with the naked eye, astronomers tell us that we would be able to count about 9,000 stars together, just with the naked eye. If we were to use a good pair of binoculars that number of stars that we would be able to count jumps to about 200,000. If we were to enlist the help of a small telescope and do the same thing, uh, and we had time to do this, we could count, uh, if it's possible in our lifetime, up to 15 million stars, just a small microscope. 
If we had access to a large observatory, that number would climb into the billions. All right, let's just imagine you and I had the time and the tools to count all the stars just in our one Milky Way galaxy. According to astronomers, our Milky Way galaxy is just an average-sized barrel spiral galaxy. But it's so large that the only way that we can measure it is through light years. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's how fast light travels. Um, And a light year is how how fast that light travels in a year. And I'm told that it's roughly about 5 trillion miles. It's one light year. That's how fast that, or how far that travels. So if you and I were driving 70 miles per hour, it it would take us about 10 million years to cross that distance. One light year. Our average size galaxy, the Milky Way, is 120,000 light years across. Astronomers estimate that just in our little average-sized Milky Way galaxy alone, there are up to 400 billion stars of different size and brightness. Right, and as you and I peer through uh, just a cheap telescope, we also see um, some patches in the sky, which astronomers now know those are other galaxies. There are out there spiral galaxies out there with more than in them each one, a trillion stars. And giant elliptical galaxies with over 100 trillion stars. All right, mind blown yet? Have you shut off? Have you gone on that place where you're just like, I can't even process these numbers? All right, lean into that. It's a good thing. So here's, just talking about this, one galaxy, right? Milky Way galaxy, one galaxy. Astronomers estimate that based on what we know and continue to discover uh, through an ever-increasing known universe, that that they estimate now that there are... (laughs) More than 170 billion galaxies. 100 billion, 70 billion galaxies in the universe stretching out into a region of space 13.8 billion light years away in every direction. Which means this. The total number of stars that we are aware of and can estimate um, is 10 to the 24th power. That is a 1 followed by 24 zeros. That's a septillion stars. But astronomers are quick to point out that there may be more. All right, and when you just stop and you let this blow your mind and take your breath away and you think that the God, who sp- there's a God that spoke each and every one of those into existence and sustains them and holds all of those galaxies very, very small in the palm of his hand should blow our minds should take our breath away, should help us reserve that divine wow for God. The heavens declare the glory of God. When was the last time that you just saw something that just floored you, that just took your breath away? Right, one of the coolest things Megan and I got to do shortly after we were married was backpack uh, across Western Europe with about 40 high school kids and we found ourselves in a place called Lauterbrunn in Switzerland. And I have never seen anything like it. We pull into Lauterbrunn in Switzerland, and you've got, for probably two miles, this, this cliff face that goes about three, 400 feet straight up, all the way down this valley. You've got two mountains behind you, another cliff on this side, waterfalls cascading hundreds of feet off of these. And people are base jumping all, from the Swiss Army all the whole day. And then you've got this giant mountain out there, and, and we're thousands of feet above sea level, and at night, I mean, in the day, we're so high up that the clouds are at eye level. They come rolling in, and you're just surrounded by clouds. At night, when it got clear, you, you just felt like you were swimming in stars. I've never seen anything so bright. 
and, and there were just no words. You know, like I'm failing to communicate horribly to you what we experienced in that moment. We're looking around, and there's just no way to explain it. Right, and in that moment, what the artist is doing, he's just showing off a little bit. <laughs> that's nothing. But for us, it's all we could handle. And to think that that's just creation. Who is this creator God? What kind of mind are we dealing with? What kind of creativity? What kind of character? <sighs> Should take our breath away. All of creation. If our eyes are open, every square inch of creation proclaims the glory of God. Right, you take any square inch of, of, of creation. Right now, you, there, there are just the, just the quantum particles. Right now, there are billions of quantum particles flying through you, and you're nothing but a structured, intelligent design of all of these random quantum particles. And it is, it's absolutely mind-boggling. If you think about your brain, as you're sitting here listening to me talk, this, this piece of, of thing that is inside your skull, amazing, 10 billion, has 10 billion neurons, and is connected by 10 trillion synaptic connections. There are more synaptic connections in your brain than there are a number of stars in the universe. In your head! It's mind-blowing, which means in a very real sense, your brain is more complex than the universe. It's an absolute masterpiece. If you added up those dendrites in there together, even though they're just a small fraction, you have to view them underneath a microscope. If you just added those together, you could circle the earth five times. You take any quarter-sized segment of your brain, and it is more complex than the global internet system. It's unbelievable. It's a stroke of genius. Right? When you consider the heavens, creation, the quantum particles, the brain that God has given you, the stars in the sky, it should just blow our minds. The one who spoke that in his existence is so far beyond what we can comprehend and imagine. And I believe that all of creation will tell you, if you will look for it, you will see it that the God who is the true God, the capital G God, the creator, the capital C creator, he is, he is utterly unfathomable. He is incomprehensible. He is inscrutable. He is unbelievable. He's inconceivable. He's unimaginable. He's indescribable. He's unthinkable. He's inexplicable. And if you love him, he's simply irresistible. And if that doesn't take your breath away, this should take your breath away. That God who created all this, man, somewhere in space, there's a tiny little dust particle flying through space with a bunch of tiny little people on it who thought they were God. And they tried to reject the one who gave them life. And amazingly, he didn't just smite them out of existence. Right? But we open up the scriptures and we find that he loved them passionately and worked with them, us, patiently, throughout human history in some of the most unexpected of ways. Right? And that he entered into this little speck of dust, human story in the most humble of circumstances and took upon himself that which is anti, antithetical to himself, which is sin, and experienced what is antithetical to himself, which is hell, so that we could know him, love him, be given a second chance at life, both now and in eternity, and that should take our breath away. It is, it is awesome. It is mind-boggling. It is hard to comprehend. It's unbelievable. And if that doesn't just stir something in you, you've got to be all but spiritually dead for that to just to feel absolutely nothing. How, how, when you think about that, that, that should, how, our response, what do we respond to that? How else can we respond than just to say, this is so infinitely beyond me 
this is so other than me. This God is so holy. The only thing that I can do is fall down on my face and worship him in the little bit that I understand. That's all that I can do. It's just worship. And I would submit to you that that is the biblical concept, the idea of phobos, of fearing the Lord. Now, to address the skeptics in the room, and I know at Mosaic we always got them and I love them, and we've got a heart for skeptics. I will just confess to you, I will just admit uh, that I am hopelessly subjective. I am. I am biased. And so when I see something uh, that just takes my breath away, I attribute that to God because that's what I'm looking for. And what we're looking for uh, has a huge influence on what we actually see. And so I just admit that to you. I'm, I'm really, really biased. I am. But so are you. And maybe this morning you'd be willing to admit, uh, like one young atheist I had the time, uh, I got to spend time with you recently, who said, you know, I've never seen God, but if I'm really honest, I've never looked for him either. Right? Maybe this morning you'd be willing to admit that, that maybe, just maybe, God has been shouting to you, right? Trying to point you to himself and reveal himself to you and his good, loving character but you've just had the proverbial spiritual beer goggles on up until now, right? You haven't been looking, right? But he's speaking to you now, and he's calling to you now, and maybe, just maybe, if you look for him, you'll see him. And I believe you will, right? Maybe like Jacob, even, you'll be moved to a place to say, wow, surely the Lord was in this place, and I was unaware of it. And the best part about it is, is that God is not a big cosmic bully in the sky, but that he is a good God. A good God. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I'll just say this. We just got to remember that God is both. He is both. He is good. He is loving. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is a refuge. He is the redeemer. He is all of those things, but he is also mighty and awesome and just Right, to use the language of Revelation, he is the lamb, but he's also the lion. Right, and that lion goes where he pleases. He roams, he roars. He goes when he wants to go. He comes back when he wants to come back. I mean, he, he moves as he pleases. And this is one of the things that I love about uh, C.S. Lewis, I think just got it right in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right, great, great novel. C.S. Lewis was uh, unapologetically a passionate follower of Jesus, and that made its way through all of his stories, and, and, or many of his stories. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, as many of you are aware, Aslan represents God. And Aslan is, is the lion, and I love it because in the story, Aslan is received in two very different ways throughout the story. Right? He, uh, he inspires these two qualities. There's, there's a sense of, of familiarity to those who are open to it. But there's also, at times, a sense of dread. Right? There, there, he inspires this sense of, of awesomeness, but also exhibits profound tenderness. Right? He, he frightens people at times, but he also invites people into friendship. It is this beautiful combination in this untamed line, and these two things don't normally go together, but in God they do. And so I want to end with this last quote, and it's so good. Right, and Susan is, is part of the story, and she has just found out that this Aslan that everybody's been talking about, that she has heard about, is not a man, but is actually a lion. And she says this, she says, I thought he was a man, 
uh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And her comrade said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. And he's worthy to be worshipped. Let's pray. Lord God, I don't, I don't expect for this to really resolve for anybody in 30 minutes on Sunday morning. And I don't think it was ever meant to. I think this is a lifelong journey and process of replacing what is oftentimes fear of man and making people big with you and making you big instead. Of being moved to reverent awe and wonder and worship, just amazed and floored by who you are. And Lord God, I just ask on behalf of those who are a part of this community that you would open us up to those moments and show up in those moments where we are just floored by your presence. Even though for some of us, I'm going to venture to guess, some of us don't really want that. Some of us would be very, very afraid to be laid bare before you in all of our sin and all of our brokenness. But Lord God, I ask for it so that we can personally experience the amazing grace of being floored by you, awed by you. Lord, continue to show us and move us and open our eyes to the fact that you are God and we are not. Right? You don't submit to us. We submit to you. And we do submit to you the very little that we bring you from our tiny little lives on this tiny little particle, on this tiny, in this tiny little galaxy, one of 170 billion, remember. The little that we have, we bring to you and we just respond with the divine wow. And we worship you. We pray these things, Lord. In your great and holy name, amen.